Chapter Nineteen of A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nelly by J. B. Polly. Chapter Nineteen. Some Escape Stories. Morristown, Tennessee, January the 15th, 1864. While in the early morn of New Year's Day I was doing my level best to find both savour and repletion in the three days' rations of blue beef and flour made of sick wheat just issued to us, an order came for the detail of the best shod man of each company in the brigade to report at once to Captain Thrasher of the 3rd Arkansas. As I happened to be the lucky man of my company, whose footwear was most unimpeachable, the choice fell upon me. Nothing could have better suited my taste. Four inches of snow, white, glittering, and frozen, lay on the ground. A stiff breeze, straight from Greenland's icy mountains, or some other Hyperborean region, gave a snap and a thrill to the atmosphere that was inspiring and invigorating, and the sky was cloudless. In truth, it was ideal weather for a tramp, and in the exuberance of my joy at release from camp monotony, I turned over my share of the rations just issued to my messmates, and when, on reporting to Captain Thrasher, he informed me that his orders were to take a detachment of forty men across the French Broad River and turn them loose to wander broadcast over the country as a protection to foraging parties of quartermasters and commissaries, I was glad I had been so generous. Crossing the river an hour before sunset, we sought a first night's shelter in a large barn, a quarter of a mile distant from the dwelling-house of its owner, a unionist, and therefore conspicuous by his absence. The house promised the more comfort to a now ravenously hungry soldier, and no sooner after arrival at the barn had I lent the blanket I would not need to a comrade, and placed my gun and accoutrements in his charge, than sure that Captain Thrasher was yet in the barn and was not looking, I made an adroit flank movement and strolled in the direction of the dwelling. Lest, however, the captain should see me and deem me a little premature in turning myself loose in the country, I pursued a devious route. That proved my undoing for, unfortunately, it was the longer way. That plagued Arkansas captain not only got to the house first, but ere I came and put up an eloquent petition for board and lodging for the night, had secured for himself and three members of his regiment all the spare accommodations of the house, and every place at the table, and I had to go back to the barn supperless, and with little idea where I was to get breakfast next morning. To describe the good time I had would beggar my powers of description, and then leave the half untold. A small and select party of us went thirty miles down the country to the deserted home of Nick Swan, a noted Unionist, then commanding a regiment in the Federal Army. All I got for my tramp, though, was a chunk of delicious dried beef that we found in a dark corner of the smokehouse. Next we went over to Pigeon River to the house of Colonel Jack of the Confederate Army, and while being entertained with music, vocal and instrumental, by his fair daughters, met a straggling party of the Terry Rangers. 
while the infantry under longstreet's command have been enjoying their rest in winter quarters in the neighborhood of morristown the rangers and other cavalry have been fighting day and night to keep the yankees off of them i have so little of skirmish and battle to write about that i must perforce resort to story-telling a member of the seventeenth mississippi related an incident to me the other day that happily illustrates the spirit of the virginia women as well as the rather rough humour in which a soldier sometimes indulges the seventeenth was marching down a street of the historic old town of williamsburg seemingly endeavouring to escape the dangers of the battle longstreet was making against the federals on the fourth of may eighteen sixty two a maiden rare with golden hair rushed out of a house into the street and coming to a halt near the moving troops cried turn back southerners turn back don't you hear the shouts of the captains and the roar of the murderous cannon they and their brave compatriots are facing turn back i beseech and implore you but unmoved by her eloquence the wearied men trudged stolidly on undiscouraged she took a fresh hold on her voice and shouted turn back men for the sake of the women of the south and all you hold dear and precious turn back and fight the dastardly yankees as our forefathers did the redcoats during the revolution if your captain won't lead you i will just at this critical juncture the command ran down the line halt about face double quick and as they were being obeyed a wild rebel yell sounded high above the din of the distant battle imagining she was being taken at her word and that her appeal had been the cause of the halt and about facing the lovely would-be joan of arc her face all ablaze with high and desperate resolve rushed to the head of the column evidently intending to lead it but alas pride goeth before a fall her ardour and enthusiasm fiercely burning as they were cooled in the next second and halting in her tracks she stood mute motionless and abashed for having caught her eye one of the boys said in the tone of one chiding a little sister don't go with us sissy don't think of going you might tear your dress not many of our brigade have ever been captured and the majority of those that have been have had the luck either to get a quick exchange or to effect an escape when bill givens of my company returned to the command after a sojourn of two months duration in fort delaware he told an interesting as well as amusing story of his escape that prison as you likely know is in the middle of delaware bay some distance below the city of philadelphia getting tired at last of durance vile bill concluded to risk a swim to the northern shore of the bay the southern shore being too closely guarded for him to venture in that direction once landed he intended to hide in the tall grasses of the marshes for a day or two and then make his way around philadelphia his voyage from fort to shore had to be made in the night time on account of the risk of discovery by the many passing vessels so one very dark night he evaded the vigilance of the prison guards procured a plank six feet long and as many inches wide dropped into the water and struck out for dry land and liberty and as long as the starlight lasted made good headway and continued hopeful after midnight though a fog came up and he lost his bearings 
not being able from the surface of the bay even to see the lights that shone in the fort this was disheartening but he kept up his paddling consoling himself with the reflection that even should he be heading for the atlantic ocean he was at any rate getting further from a hated prison so on and on he swam until day beginning to dawn and the fog lifting somewhat he discovered a vessel within a half mile of him then sir said bill my heroic soul rose to a square level with the direful emergency of the occasion never doubting that i was yet in the middle of the cussed old bay and hopeless of escaping the watchful eyes of the sailors on the deck of the vessel i resolved rather than be recaptured to shuffle off this mortal coil in short to die to just let myself sink into the vast depth of the blue waters and drown but i wasn't going to be a fool and pass in my checks in advance of discovery while waiting for that i remembered having read or heard that drowning was actually a pleasant method of dying and that the deeper the water the more delightful the sensation the more comfortable and easy the exit from this veil of tears and trouble this set me to wondering whether the bay at that point was deep enough to make drowning the picnic it was cracked up to be and what my first sensations would be only by experiment could the weighty problem be solved and i decided to make it that is to sink as deep in the water as i could and stay under long enough to do more or less strangling pushing the plank from under me i pointed the foot end of my corpus toward the centre of the earth and sank down 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 i expected and intended to go but i didn't for the water wasn't even waist deep let alone deep enough to drown a fellow i was so amazed and exasperated at finding it too shallow for the test that for two seconds and a half i forgot to be grateful for my good luck then knowing the shore must be near by i stood up long enough to take a good look around me and discovered land not a hundred yards distant that i made for it in a hurry you may well imagine not on my feet though but lest i be seen from the vessels swimming like an alligator my nose and eyes only out of water fortunately i was not seen and now thank god i am here safe and sound but i had a mighty close call boys for if i hadn't touched bottom i'd have made a martyr of myself sure and instead of being able to eat three times the rations i get would be floating a cold pulseless emaciated and fish-nibbled skeleton on the blue waters of the ever-heaving atlantic ocean here bill paused and with his sleeve wiped away the big tear that had stolen down his left cheek respecting such evidently genuine emotion no one spoke for a minute or more dansby always a doubting thomas and often irreverent broke the silence asking honest injun now bill givens would you really have had the nerve and the grit to drown yourself bill's rugged lineaments instantly lost the look of exultation they had worn and speaking with a solemnity rather at variance with the savage glance he cast at dansby he replied yes sir honest injun i would have had the nerve and the grit i was in exactly the frame of mind when life as a prisoner of the infernal yankees had lost every charm death every terror not a doubt of it said dansby in a tone of irony but go on with your story and tell us how you circumlocuted around baltimore 
Not today, not today, said Bill, his voice shaking with emotion. When I remember the small margin of time that was between me and a briny grave, my heart gets too full for utterance. If you don't stop talking to me, I'll go to downright boo-hooing. In the story of the escape from the same prison of Jim Loggins of Company G of the 4th Texas, there is a tincture of romance, a flavor of narrowly averted tragedy. Jim is an exceedingly handsome young fellow, and his pulchritude and captivating ways won him the favoring regard of a beautiful Philadelphia maiden, a constant visitor to the fort, and a pronounced southern sympathizer. By her he was informed that if he could manage to outwit his guards, get into Philadelphia, and call on a certain Dr. B. there, that gentleman would befriend him and send him back to Dixie's land by the underground route. How he got out of the clutches of the guards I do not know, Jim being very reticent in regard to that part of the adventure, but he got out some way or other, entered the city, and made the call. Fortunately, Dr. B. was alone in his office, and the fugitive had only to say he was a confederate to enlist the services of a good Samaritan on his behalf. "'Sit right down here in my office and wait until I return,' said the old fellow. "'I will step up the street and buy you a suit of citizens' clothes, "'and when you have got inside of them, I'll take you to my house "'and let our mutual friend, Miss Blank, know of your arrival.' "'The voice was friendly and cheering, and it fell most soothingly on Jim's ears. "'Still, he did not like to be left alone quite so soon.' and would much have preferred a bold tramp on the streets by the side of his newly found friend. Dr. B., however, insisted he should remain in the office, and stay he did. But to diminish the chance of being identified by some caller as an escaped rebel, he placed his chair in the darkest corner of the room, and seizing on a book pretended to be engaged in its perusal. On his way to the clothing store, Dr. B. met a compatriot in the person of Dr. Doe, and, believing he could safely rely on his discretion, whispered to him, I left a rebel in my office who has just escaped from prison. Go and keep him company until I return. Delighted by the opportunity to serve a confederate, Dr. Doe rushed into the office where Jim sat trembling with nervous dread of some adverse happening, and noticing that no attention was paid his coming, instantly decided to indulge in an inherent fondness for practical joking. Stepping silently to the corner where Jim sat, he laid his hand on the young fellow's shoulder and in his sternest voice said, "'You are my prisoner, sir!' The joke missed fire, its intended victim not being at that moment in the frame of mind to appreciate its humour. Dr. B.'s kindness had inspired him with hopes that the heavy hand and stern voice of the newcomer blasted. Resolving to die then and there rather than abjectly surrender and be returned to an intolerable captivity, Jim sprang to his feet and between Dr. Doe and the door, and raising a heavy chair threateningly over the bald head of the would-be jokist, exclaimed, Make the first motion, you infernal abolitionist hound, to lay a hand on me, and by the holy Moses I'll smear the floor with your brains. Not a movement made Dr. Doe, nor thought of making one. The moment did not seem auspicious. The resolute tone and look, 
the unconquerable bearing of the young rebel spoke whole volumes of menace and standing there trembling he realized that he had sadly mistaken his game as soon as fright permitted him to use his tongue again he sought to explain he was not only an intimate friend of dr b he said but was himself a true confederate he had come to the office at dr b s request and had only intended to play an innocent little joke and much more to the same purport well began jim half convinced of dr doe's friendliness but still indignant at being selected as the butt of such a joke if you are as friendly to me and the cause i serve as you make yourself out to be i reckon you know now that you picked a poor time to play pranks yes i know i did replied dr doe and i humbly beg your pardon for being so thoughtless and inconsiderate but i'll just step out of doors and see if dr b is anywhere near not by a jugful will you step out and do any such thing quickly interposed jim you will just stay right here in this office till dr b comes back then if i find you have lied to me i'll kill you with as little mercy as i would a snake and with this possibility staring him in the face dr doe had no option but to remain moreover when dr b at last returned and demanded an explanation of the obviously strained relations between the fugitive and the gentleman sent to keep him from being lonesome dr doe had not only to furnish that explanation but also to accept with meekness a larger measure of chafing and scolding than such a grave and dignified old gentleman was at all accustomed to but all's well that ends well by the combined assistance of the two physicians and miss blank jim slipped through the lines and is now on duty with his company the sun is yet an hour high i am comfortably fixed for writing and whether or not you have the patience to read it have both the time and the inclination to relate the story of another escape it was told me yesterday and it is my duty to keep it a-going the lucky man is a member of the fifth texas his name i think simpson but whether it be or not i will call him that on our way to maryland in eighteen sixty two his chum and messmate bob eddy said to him see here old fellow you are so venturesome that you are going to be captured some of these days if you should be and can get into the city of new york go straight to my father and he will help you in any way he can i have written to him about you here is his name and address on this card simpson took the card and dropped it into his haversack shortly afterward while out on a scout the yankees gobbled him up and sent him to a prison on the delaware coast a month later he escaped boarded a train and proceeded to new york city there his troubles began his captors had relieved him of his haversack and all its contents and belabour his memory as he might he could only remember that the name of his messmate's father was r g eddy when however he had recourse to the city directory which he found in a leading hotel and ascertained that two r g eddies resided on chestnut street he easily identified that as the street named on the card one eddy though lived at twelve seventeen the other at thirteen ten to which should he go at one or the other assistance awaited him at one or the other the peril of recapture 
Thus far, no notice had been taken of him. To make inquiries, though, would be to acknowledge himself a stranger in the city, and perhaps excite the curiosity of some unfriendly person. So, jotting down the two addresses, he decided to call first at 1217. In antebellum days, tolerably familiar with the city, he had little difficulty in finding unaided both street and number. Tripping lightly up the steps, he rang the bell, and, not caring to attract the attention of any of the many persons of both sexes then on their way to church, the moment a servant-girl opened the door sufficiently, he stepped inside and asked for Mr. Eddy. That gentleman happened to be coming down a flight of stairs which landed in the hall, and, noticing this, the girl retired. Kindness showed in his countenance, and he looked enough like the confederate Eddie to convince a visitor as sorely in need of help as was Simpson that he was the father of that young man, and feeling that at last his lines had fallen in pleasant places, Simpson freely unbosomed himself of his story. Imagine his dismay when the old gentleman's face lost its look of benevolence, and he said coldly and sternly, "'You have made a great mistake, sir.' you have come to the wrong place i am not thank god the father of the rebel bob eddy but of a son who is a captain in the union army all my sympathies are with the union cause and if i do my duty i will have you immediately arrested poor simpson a moment ago his heart beat lightly and buoyantly now it throbbed slowly and despairingly and falling back against the wall unable without its support to stand erect he stood silent and hopeless for a minute that seemed an age to him not a word was said then mr eddy spoke again saying yes it is my duty to have you arrested but i can't do as mean a thing as to take advantage of your mistake in coming here just come along upstairs with me, and we'll see what can be done. An hour later, Simpson's most intimate friend would not have recognized him. Such was the transformation that a bath, a clean shave, and a thorough change of linen and outer garments had effected in his appearance. And mirabile dictu, as many will say who believe that a northern man cannot be as generous as a southern, mr eddy also handed the fugitive a hundred dollars in greenbacks and when the latter would have protested said it's all right young man it's all right and don't you bother i haven't any business to be helping you at all but as long as i'm doing it i'm going the whole hog on it if helping you is treason i want the treason to be respectable but it is time you were going bob eddy's father lives at thirteen ten on this street and in your present disguise you can safely visit him but remember please that should you and i meet again it must be as perfect strangers as a true lover of my country i ought to wish you recaptured as a man i hope you'll not be from the other r g eddy the father of bob eddy simpson received as cordial a welcome as could safely be given he spent a month in the city frequently meeting his union benefactor and then went over into canada whence he made his way back to the south End of chapter nineteen